0: We don't have time to, to say everything, so I pray that you will, uh, will use this word, and uh, what needs to be followed up afterwards would, would happen as well. We pray that you'll honor Jesus, that you'll see people brought to him through this, your word, and you'll change our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here's a question for you. Does it matter who you worship? Does it matter how you worship? The great philosopher of our day, Homer Simpson, you might have heard of him, uh, He raises an interesting point. He says, suppose we've chosen the wrong God. Every time we go to church, we're just making Him matter and matter. And many people would say, Buddha, Jesus, Allah, whatever, whatever floats your boat. You know, they're just different names for the same thing, aren't they? That's very postmodern, isn't it? Just as we want to be able to say, yeah, everyone's right. Islam itself doesn't agree with that, by the way. Islam's the other extreme from that. It says, no, no, you have to do it like this. You have to worship Allah, you have to pray this number of times per day facing this direction. In fact, it says in the Quran, here's a a quote, um, it says in the Quran that if you say Jesus is God, you go to hell. They certainly disbelieve who say Allah, God, is the Messiah, the son of Mary. Indeed, he who associates others with Allah, Allah has forbidden him paradise. And his refuge is the fire. So the Bible says Jesus is God. Quran says if you believe that, you go to hell. It seems to me that the one thing you can't say is that they're both right. The postmodernism is the only option you can rule out straight away. Those two things can't both be true. So, does it matter who you worship? Does it matter how you worship? The chapter of the Bible we've just read is a chapter about idolatry. Idolatry is a word that means worshipping false gods. And I wonder if you caught the, the vibe of the passage. It's very intense. Have a look at verse 8, chapter 10, verse 8. Uh, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did and in one day 23,000 of them died verse 9 it says they were killed verse 10 says they were killed the point verse 12 so if you think you're standing firm be careful so that you don't fall this is an intense passage because it's a warning passage it's like the labels on cigarette packets I've heard that people from other countries can't believe what our cigarette packets look like. They're so extreme. Have you, look at this. They are graphic warnings. It's, it's, it really is pretty surprising that, that that's what they look like. It's loving, though, if that's the reality, isn't it, to give that kind of a warning. Now, the, the Bible actually doesn't say anything about cigarettes one way or the other, but it does have a big fat warning label on idolatry, and it says this. It says, it will kill you. Now, I would never have thought to write a chapter like this, right? This isn't on my radar. If I thought to mention it, I wouldn't write it like this. And just observing that clarifies one thing for us, what we're trying to do as we read the Bible. What we're not trying to do is take some principle from the Bible and put it into our lives. What we actually need to do is understand how the writer who wrote this sees the world, the inspired apostle sent from God. We want to grasp the way that he sees the world the things that cause him to write this way. Our job is not to take bits and pieces from that and put it into our worldview. It's to try and understand the Bible's worldview so that this shapes the way we see reality and we go, yeah, I'd say the same thing. That's how you know you understand a passage. when you go, yeah, that's what I would say as well. And he says, idolatry, worshipping the wrong God the wrong way will kill you. So, So how is it that he sees the world that would make him talk like that? Now, I wonder if you've been around church for a while maybe you go yeah 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 okay i get that other gods aren't the real god here's the interesting thing the the corinthians knew that as well so chapter 8 verse 2 we saw it two weeks ago they were saying we know an idol is nothing we know there's no god but one and paul knows they know that and yet he still warns them which suggests what to you it suggests that you can know that other gods aren't real and still fall into idolatry. Which means this is a real danger for us, for each of us. Now, okay, whenever you read a part of the Bible, you want to put it into its context. Otherwise, you can make any, you can make any part of the Bible say whatever you want it to say. That's not our hunger here at church. Our hunger is to hear what God has to say on his own terms. And so you've got to put it into context. Let me give you some context. We're looking at letter, 1 Corinthians, written by a guy called Paul, an apostle, to a church in Corinth. And this was a messed up church. Instead of the church impacting the world around them, the world around them was impacting the church. And so Paul writes to them to say this, don't you realize you are the temple of God? Centuries before, prophets had, had told about a day when God's temple would be glorious and, and nations all over the world would flow into it to worship the true God. And Paul says... That's you. You're actually that temple they spoke about. The temple is now the people of God because we have the Spirit of God dwelling inside us. Paul says, that's who you are, but you've got a long way to go living up to that reality. And so that's the book of 1 Corinthians in a nutshell. Basically, it says, don't you realize who you are as Christians? Live like it. And so in a nutshell, the message of 1 Corinthians is this, as God's temple God wants you to be united. It's on the slide, united in pure and true worship. And so you go through 1 Corinthians, it starts with the united bit, chapters 1 to 4, and then it cuts to the pure bit. He wants, God wants you to be holy, chapters 5 to 7, and then chapters 8 to 14, it's on that topic of true worship. So there we are, we're in the part, in chapter 10, we're in that part that's focused on true worship, and in each of those sections, unity, purity, and worship, there's a thing to get rid of, and a thing to put on. So, for example, in that pure bit, chapters 4 to 7, get rid of sexual immorality, he says, and instead put on using your bodies in a way that glorifies God. In this section, Paul says, get rid of false worship and selfishness, which is a, a form of false worship, and instead glorify God the right way. Now, if all of that went over your head, here's the point. Worshipping God right is a big deal in this section of the letter that we're reading. So even the context tells us that it matters to God that we worship Him right. But one of the funny things as you read these chapters is just how much worshipping God right depends on the way you treat other people. So chapters 8 to 10 focus on a really specific issue. They focus on the issue of uh, is it okay to eat food that's been sacrificed to an idol? Where I grew up, not many people are doing that. I take it maybe where some of you guys grew up, uh, that may be more common. But v- chapter 8, verse 1, it says, about food sacrificed to idols. You get to chapter 10 and verse 28, right at the end of chapter 10, it's still on that same topic. It says, if someone says that this has been offered in sacrifice, don't eat it. And so Pete said last week, it's like a sandwich. You know, the bread is that specific issue at either end. Should I eat food sacrificed to idols? Should I And in the middle, he gives... It's kind of like um, a ham and cheese sandwich. There's two principles in the middle that shape how we think about that issue. Um, So last week was the ham, chapter 9. Principle number one, should I eat food sacrificed to idols? Well, don't be selfish. Worshipping God right means considering the good of the others around you. As Christians, we're called to lay down our rights, lay down our freedom and our desires to serve one another. So that's the cheese in the ham and cheese sandwich. But the ham is the idols themselves. He says, actually, I don't think you're taking idolatry seriously enough. You underestimate the danger. And so that brings us to chapter 10. There's two parts in chapter 10, verses 1 to 13, or verses 1 to 14. He he says, look what happened in the Old Testament, the, the first part of the Bible. That's got something to say to us. And then chapters 14 to the end, he goes back to that specific issue and give some practical things when it comes to food office to idols he says if this circumstance you can eat it if that circumstance you can't eat it and then he ends with a big finish a big summary statement so that's how the chapter that we're looking at works we're going to zoom in on verses 1 to 14 and as we come to it have you ever wondered why the bible is such a big book especially the old testament right it's old it's weird it is super long uh you know, minimalism, who's into minimalism? It's all the rage these days. Maybe we should just get rid of it. You know, what's the saying that they say in minimalism? You know, if it doesn't bring me joy, get rid of it. Maybe, maybe the Old Testament doesn't bring you joy. There's a preacher in America, it, it brings a lot of people joy. Um, there's a preacher in America that actually says exactly this, basically. He says, uh, he's a very popular preacher, and he says, um, the first Christian leaders, the apostles, they got rid of the Old Testament, they decided to distance themselves from it, to make it easier for people to come to know Jesus. And we should follow their example. We should distance ourselves from the Old Testament. Now, the problem with that is verse 6 and verse 11 in this chapter. Have a look at verse 11. These things happened to them, he's talking about things in the Old Testament, as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culminations of the ages has come. And that verse really sums up the point that he's making in this section We need the Old Testament. It was written, look at the words in verse 11, for us, underline those words, for us. We need the Old Testament. Now let me point something out. Do you notice that verse 11 doesn't say that these things happened and then God decided to take them and use them as an example? Instead it says that they happened as examples. As in, before they even happened, God planned that they would happen so that we would have examples. In other words, God doesn't just take history and turn it into a lesson. He steers history to create the examples that we would need. That is a big view of God. A view of God that says He is sovereign over everything that happens, guiding all of it in every detail to where He wants it to go. Now, a view of God like that can raise questions. Where's God in tragedy? Let me say this. There's more that could be said, but let me say this. When tragedy does hit, there's no other view of God that brings any comfort. Here is the only foundation for comfort in tragedy. God is bigger than it. It hasn't thrown him off course. It hasn't taken him by surprise. He's not scrambling to react. He's got it. He's working all things according to his plan. There's more that could be said, but that is the only rock in a storm. The true God who steers all of history. And verse 11 says that there's a place that God is taking the world. It describes us, if you look at verse 11, it calls us people on whom the end of the ages has come. Look at verse 11. These are things were written down as warnings for us on whom the culminations of the ages has come culmination the place where something's going right so graduation day that's the culmination of your university degree we live on the university's graduation day the history of the world the ages have been leading up to a day when god would come into the world in a person of jesus christ on a rescue mission to seek sinners and bring them home to god and the things that happened in the old testament were examples to help us because we live in the pointy end of the universe's history. Now, the, the things... Um, I, I want to move on and talk about why he's bringing this up, but let me make two observations about this. Number one, God does have a purpose and a plan. Never doubt that. He's taking this, this universe somewhere. But number two, there are some religious groups out there that will tell you that they've got a new word from God after the Bible. Muslims, Mormons, so on... They'll say, yes, okay, the Bible is from God. They'll say that. But now we've got an update. We've got new revelation. Verse 11 leads you to, helps you see that the Bible itself doesn't lead you to expect that there'll be an update, a new revelation. How do I know that? Well, 2,000 years ago, to these people, it says that the end of the ages has already come. The culmination's already arrived. God has come to earth himself in the person of Jesus and given his final word. There is no additional word. These guys lived at the end. If they lived at the end, we live at the end. The very next thing Paul expects is the final return of Christ, 1 Thessalonians 4, nothing more. And he says, don't get led away by people claiming that there's a new revelation. Jesus, the next thing will happen is Jesus will come and when that happens, you won't miss it. Anyway, verse 11, God made all of that happen, all the Old Testament and caused it to be written down for us which means we must read the Old Testament. Do you read the Old Testament? It's good that we looked at numbers last term at at church. In your own life, at home, do you read the Old Testament? In particular, Paul says, pay attention to what it teaches about how God sees idolatry. Now, verse 11 calls them examples. There's a funny thing about that, isn't it? Because they're not examples to copy. They're examples of what not to do. Some people read the Old Testament and they go, oh, there's really terrible things happening in this book. How can you like this book? Well, yeah, they're terrible. That's the point. It's not always saying do this. A lot of the time it's saying this is what you're like and don't do that. So as we look at Paul's argument, what we're going to see um, is this. The argument he's going to make from the Old Testament. We're going to see that idolatry can stop you going to heaven even if you call yourself a Christian, even if you go to church and you got baptized and every second week at church you take communion, it's possible you could do all of those things and yet still be an idolater, a person that worships false gods. You could still miss out on heaven. That's a a heavy word. It's a scary word for us. Scary word for me. I come to church. I take communion. I got baptized. It's supposed to be an intense and a scary word. Look at verse 12. If you think you're standing firm, be careful so you don't fall. Maybe you think, I prayed the prayer at Rice Rally. I got baptized at church weekend away. I'm good with God, aren't I? Once saved, always saved, right? You can't lose your salvation, can you? Well, listen to Paul. If you think you're standing firm, be careful so that you don't fall. Let me show you how Paul gets to that. He starts by talking about the nation Israel. This is verses 1 to 5. The nation that God pulled out of slavery, rescued them to be his people. And the key word in verses 1 to 5 is the word all. Because Paul lists all these experiences that people in Israel had together. So verse 1, they were all under the cloud. Verse 1, they were all passed through the sea. Verse 3, they all ate the same spiritual food. They all went through this outwardly. But then look at verse 5 nevertheless god was not pleased with most of them their bodies were scattered in the wilderness now we saw this last term in numbers actually many of them didn't make it into the promised land even though outwardly they were part of the people of god and there's his point outwardly a person can look like a christian and yet god might not actually be pleased with them they might not make it into the promised land do you notice the way that Paul takes the events of Israel's history and deliberately draws similarities between them and, and the Christian equivalents? You read the book of Exodus and God takes this people Israel through um, out of Egypt through the Red Sea, parts the Red Sea, and they walk through and they're traveling under a cloud. And Paul goes, clouds are wet, the sea is wet. That's kind of like they were baptized. And then when they're in the desert, they ate the manna, you remember? The bread miraculously given from God and they drank water from a rock. And it's paul's like that's kind of like how we have communion we have the bread and the drink it's fascinating actually verse four says that the the rock that they got their water from was christ was jesus this is this was happening centuries before jesus was born which you know jesus didn't start existing when he was born from a virgin mary no he always existed and he was there actually centuries earlier in the desert with israel helping them we don't know exactly how that works but he was there this is actually one of the, 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 there's a couple of clues in this passage that Paul considers Jesus to actually be fully God. Verse 9 has another one. It says, don't test Christ like they did. Now you read the story and you go, when do they test Christ? I remember them testing God. Well, that would only make sense that he would say that if he thinks Christ is God. I want to get back to the point in a second, but I can't resist pointing something out. If you believe the, the paper, the newspaper, if you believe um, popular media and, and the Da Vinci Code, they'll tell you that the church invented the idea of Jesus being God centuries later. Impossible. It's right here. And we can date this letter, 1 Corinthians. Um, you can look up the Wikipedia article. You can look up anyone. Secular scholars will tell you, we know when this book was written. The latest it could have been written was about 55 AD, which is about 25 years at the latest after Jesus walked on earth. 25 years, not centuries later. People who were my age when Jesus was killed on a cross would be my dad's age right, when this was being written. And they've actually done research on how long it takes for legends to develop, and that's not long enough for this kind of legend. The, the theory that there was like a Jesus... but then over the centuries the legend grew and grew and grew that theory just doesn't have legs right from the earliest documents we have and this is one of the earliest documents we have the highest regard possible for jesus it never gets it never grows from this here he's considering him fully god one with the god of the old testament that's as big as it can get but do you catch paul's point in this he's saying these guys the israelites outwardly they were god's people they they were baptized they ate communion They even had Jesus in their midst. They had all of that. All of them did. And yet many of them didn't make it into the promised land. They ended up under the judgment of God. And so Paul says, look at verse 6. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. In other words, there's a real danger, a genuine danger that you might be here and you might be baptized and you might take communion, but your heart might actually be set on evil things. That could be the case for you now or it could become the case for you down the track. And the, the example of the Old Testament teaches us that if that happens to you, you won't be saved. You'll stand under God's judgment. God gave you the life that you have. What makes you think you can abandon Him, run after evil things and still keep that life that He gave you? Brothers and sisters, let me draw some application. Put little confidence in outward signs. It's a good sign that you hear on a Sunday morning, a cold, windy Sunday morning. It is a good sign. But it doesn't mean you're necessarily okay with God. It's good to take communion. It is actually meant to reassure your heart It's meant to do that. But it's not meant to stop you checking your heart and guarding your heart. Never rely on the outward signs. What's the inward reality of your heart? Verse 6 says. You might have heard people say this this line, once saved, always saved. Who's heard that? Can I get an indication? Who's a once saved? Yeah, it goes around. And what that line is trying to capture is some of the wonderful promises that the Bible has. Promises that are meant to reassure us that God will hold on to us. I find comfort in these promises. Jesus says, for example, it's on the screen, this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose none of those he's given me but raise them up at the last day. There's actually a bunch of promises like that that promise that if you come to Jesus truly and sincerely, he will hold on to you and he will keep you following him. God will finish the work he starts in you so what do you do with warnings like this one in 1 corinthians 10 well first of all you could see this warning as a as a call to just check that you're actually saved you know it's once saved always saved as long as you actually are saved as long as you actually truly did become a christian so that is actually part of the answer and it's worth asking have i ever truly repented of my sins have i ever truly put my faith in christ to save me But it's actually, there's more going on than that. Because Paul seems to think it's possible that even he could fall away. Did you catch that in the end of chapter 9? This is why we read the end of chapter 9 and into verse 10. It's all connected. But look at the end of chapter 9, verse 27. Paul says, I strike a blow to my body. I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Paul's definitely saved We know that from other passages and also the fact that he wrote half the new testament but he's aware of a very real risk that he could fall away so how does that fit together with the promises you won't but the 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 warnings you could don't do it here's the answer you could fall away but you won't fall away you got that you could but you won't let me explain how that works it is possible that you could walk away from God, but God has promised that He will stop you. But the way He'll stop you is not by putting up some invisible barrier around you so that you can run as hard as you like away from Him, you won't succeed. No, the way that God will hold on to you is that He has put warnings in front of you in the Bible that warn you of the danger of walking away from Him. And then He uses His Holy Spirit in your heart to make you hear the warnings pay attention to them and decide not to walk away from him i'll give you an illustration there's a cliff edge and uh, let's say staying on the cliff is staying in a relationship with god is it that you can't once saved always saved there's a big glass wall around the edge of the cliff and you can run at it as hard as you like you just bounce back no worries no it's not like that it's more that there's warning signs placed on the edge of the cliff That say danger, cliff, you'll die, and God or you know the Father stands at the bottom of the cliff saying, "Come back, come back away from the edge," and the true Son of the Father sees the signs, hears the Father's voice, and doesn't go over the edge. That's how it works. True Christians could walk away from God, but they won't because they'll hear the signs they'll they'll pay attention to the warnings verse 11 these things were written down as warnings for us if it was impossible for you to fall away from god these warnings would be meaningless but they're not they're here because they're real and the way that god will hold on to you is by you hearing it today and his holy spirit will make you fear it and he'll make you run away from the cliff edge and into his arms and so do you hear the warning today it's possible that you could do a verse 6. You could set your hearts on evil things like Jesus, like Israel did and you could fail to reach heaven. Verses 7 to 10 actually spell out four ways that could happen for you. There's a pattern in each of these. They all say, don't do X. Israel did X and they died. The four ways are idolatry, verse 7, sexual immorality, verse 8, testing Christ, verse 9, grumbling. Verse 10. Now, they're actually not four separate ways. They're all connected with that first one, idolatry. Now, why do I say that? Well, number one, it starts with idolatry, verse 7. And it ends with idolatry, verse 14. Whenever you see that kind of bracketing in the Bible, often it tells you this is the big picture that's going on here. Number two, it fits with what we know is going on in the, in the big picture of this chapter, food offered to idols. But number three, when you look into that event that's mentioned in... Um, of sexual immorality mentioned in verse 8. It takes you back to Numbers 25 where that event actually happened. And in Numbers 25, the sexual immorality is linked with idol worship. Numbers 25 verse 1 says, The men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women. Verse 2, who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. So sexual immorality and idolatry are bound together there. And I think that's where you start to see that this is bigger than just bowing down to a statue. Idolatry, worshipping false gods, is actually about what you love. It's about your desires. I don't know if you've seen your friend get a girlfriend and his mates say, you know, he's really in love with her. They might even say this, they might even say, he worships her. Worship is about what you desire, what you love. And so idolatry... Is loving things more than God. Here's a quote from a great Christian thinker, Martin Luther Whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. What do your thoughts drift to when you're in the shower? When you're on the train? What is it that you think about most often? You love just to let your thoughts go there. What is it that you fear losing most? What is it that you long for most? Now, we've got to be careful because it's okay to, to enjoy the things of this world and to have hobbies. There's kind of two extremes you can, you can fall into. On the one end of the, the extreme is asceticism, which is the idea that this world is evil and it's wrong to enjoy this world. The Bible says, no, that's not right. It's, it, this world's good. It's a gift from God. Don't worry. Don't, don't fall into the trap of asceticism. But on the other end is idolatry. Not this world is good, but this world is God and I worship it, I live for it, and I love it more than anything. The true path is in the middle. This world is good, but it's not God. The greatest commandment, Jesus says, is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, more than anything. If you put anything else in that place, it's idolatry. And maybe you're thinking, okay, yes, don't do that, but hell death? Isn't that a bit of an extreme reaction? Why is idolatry such a big deal? Well, we've got to see it from God's perspective. Picture this. Imagine, imagine I bought my wife some presents, okay? I bought her some nice new clothes. They're expensive. Uh, I bought her some new perfume, the, the good stuff, not the stuff in the discount aisle. I bought her some new, new jewelry and I, and I freed up a night and all this was designed so we could go on this really hot date. We'd have a great time together. And imagine I came home from a hard day at work paying for those gifts and I was really looking, out to ha- looking forward to hanging out with her. And I discovered she's not home. She's gone to a nightclub, dressed up in all the gifts I gave her and she's using those gifts to flirt with other men and try and entice them to have sex with her. That's, that's shocking, isn't it? Now, my wife wouldn't do that to me But we do something very similar to that with God because He showers His gifts on us and then instead of using those gifts to love Him, we take those gifts and use them on our own selfish desires. And that's one thing to do to your husband or your wife, but it's a more serious thing again to do it to the infinitely perfect God, the good God who made you and rules the universe. Ultimately, God takes it seriously enough that He would send people to hell over it. Now, if you see the world as basically being about human beings, nothing could possibly be serious enough to send a person to hell. Human suffering for eternity, that is the most unimaginably evil thing that could happen if the world is all about humans. But do you see that if you see the world as basically being all about humans, that is actually idolatry? It's not about us. It's fundamentally about God. Actually, the most unimaginably terrible thing that could happen is not human suffering. It's actually God being dishonored. It's God being treated as less than the stuff that he's made. If you just take this passage and try and put it into your worldview, it doesn't make any sense. We actually have to get ourselves into this worldview. We actually have to completely flip the way we see the world so that we realize we're not at the center. Humanity is not at the center. Our desires are not at the center. All of humanity combined is not the center. God and His glory is the center, and rightfully so. And it's a good thing that God calls our attention to it. It's loving because we're actually standing in front of Niagara Falls or Uluru or uh, the Grand Canyon or something majestic, right? We're standing in front of Niagara Falls and we're looking at a little photo of ourselves on our phone. We're missing the majestic view because we're focused on lesser things. We're we're like a guy on a date with his wife that just keeps looking at Twitter. And out of love, God God warns us and he says, put down the phone, look at me. And out of holiness, he says, I'm not going to let my glory be trampled forever. He says, be warned. Don't take it lightly. And we need to hear it. It might be that actually you are in danger of worshipping other gods. Maybe you're in danger of worshipping Mary, or Buddha, or Allah. Don't go there. The God of the Bible, the triune God, Father, Son, Spirit, He alone is God. Jesus is God. Worship Him alone. But maybe you are convinced that there's no other God. Maybe you're like the Corinthians, who, who, who knew that. Well, Paul will go on in this chapter to say, Therefore, be careful whenever you come into contact with things that are associated with idols. You might know that it's not idolatry. That doesn't mean it's okay just to to treat it like it doesn't matter. But also hear the warning that Paul makes here. Your own desires can become God's, can't they? Does anyone know the song, Take Me to Church by Hosier? Who knows that song? Two of you. Yeah, okay. I thought it it topped the charts, right? But I was chatting at a family function yesterday and no one knew it, right? It goes with this. Take me to church, I'll worship like a dog at the shine of your life. You know the song, right? The, The lyrics, I'll read some out, but you know he's not talking about church, don't you? You know he's talking about, well, you'll get it. My church, he says, offers no absolution. It tells me worship in the bedroom. The only heaven I'll be sent to is when I'm alone with you. You know what he's talking about there? Ariana Grande has a song at the moment, God is a Woman. And she's not, he, she's not saying anything about the true God. She's saying when we have sex, I'll be so good, you'll think God is a woman. You'll think God is me, she's saying. And there's a line in it, let's go to your, let's, let's lie down so we can pray. Those songs are quite insightful that for many people, sex and relationships, Is idolatry. It is a form of worship. Don't miss the connection between sexual sin and idolatry in this passage. The two often go to the same parties. In fact, all sexual sin is a choice to worship the created thing, my desires, or their body, more than the true God. And I read an article online recently that suggested that if a person calls himself a Christian, but refuses to stop looking at pornography, they could go to hell. What do you think is that article right well you got to be careful here because it's possible that person could be doing their best to fight that but it's hard but chapter 10 would actually say it is possible isn't it it's possible that they could be hearing the warnings of scripture but deep down loving their own desires more and so not really fighting that sin but instead giving it room We've got to hear the warning. Now, there's need for nuance there, and I don't have time to give it all, so if if that's stinging for you, talk to someone about it. But what do we do? Well, let me move towards some application. Here's number one, fear. I'm sorry if this has been intense. I think it's an intense passage, and that's actually good for us. The Bible says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. People who don't have any fear, I don't know if you've ever met someone that has no fear, They're dangerous people. They're not safe. You need a bit of fear to keep you safe. Recognize the the eternal realities that are at stake for you in all of this. And so verse 14 says, Flee from idolatry. There's the second application. Number one, fear. But number two, flee. There's an approach to the Christian life that kind of acts like this. I'm going to make it my aim to get as close to sin as possible without crossing the lines, you know. I want to live as much like the world as possible and still go to heaven. That's craziness. That's like the guy that's um, covered in petrol trying to see how close he can get to the, the the fire without himself catching fire. Verse 14 says, flee, flee, run the opposite direction. We've got to be people that pay attention to our hearts and who spot when we're being drawn to idols. And then we need to run. We need to run by drawing near to Christ. We need to run by praying. We need to run by confessing those sins to other people and getting their wisdom and getting their accountability. In other words, run by sincere repentance. Number three, fight. Fear, flee, fight. Because you know what? You'll still face temptation. God knows I do. And verse 13, it gives you hope in the fight. It says, number one, temptation is normal. Look at verse 13. No temptation has overcome you except what is common to mankind. It's normal. You're not worse than other people. In fact, the fact that you get tempted is not in itself a defeat. Many Christians get discouraged because they feel that they, they struggle so much. Let me encourage you if this stuff is a struggle for you that's actually probably a good sign if you struggle good it probably means you're not content to live in idolatry and so you're fighting against it and that's actually hard work the person who ought to fear is the person who doesn't find it a struggle why they're probably just drifting along that's the danger sign They might just be, yeah, it's it's easy. I don't have to struggle because I'm just giving in. I'm just giving in to the desires of my heart. So if you find it a struggle, if you find that day after day to live as a Christian and put God first is hard work, be encouraged. That's normal. And hear the promise of verse 13. I'll read the rest of it. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he'll also provide a way out so you can endure it. Some people misapply this verse. It's not saying that God will never give you more than you can handle. Plenty of Christians will tell you God has often given them more than they can handle. Some Christians have died for being Christians. That's more than we can handle. No, the promise here is even in those situations, whether or not we can handle them, He'll be with us and, he, and we won't have to sin in them. He'll help us to be faithful to Him even in those situations. Any temptation to sin has a way out, a way to say no, a way to get help. When I'm tempted to sin, sometimes I can think that there's no hope for me in the sense that I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to sin. I can't resist. And so I stop looking for a way out of that sin. But if you're convinced that God has given me a way out here without giving into sin, then you start looking for it. You start to get creative. You you call a friend. You ask for, for prayer. My friend threw his mobile phone into the ocean. He was so angry at the way it tempted him to sin. That's pretty extreme. There you go. It worked. There is a way out of every temptation. And you know what? I think we think he's crazy. But maybe we're crazy. Maybe if you see the danger of idolatry, that kind of action's not that crazy. It's just a phone. (laughs) I didn't have one until I was older than most of you guys. (laughs) It's just... Anyway... um, I've been convicted from this passage. The thing that I'm taking away from this, as well as the, da- the need to fear idolatry, is I need to believe that God has given me a way out of this temptation and I need to look for that way out. So fear, flee, fight. Lastly, forgiveness. I've, I've brought a pretty hard word. Warnings usually are. The label on the cigarette packet says it'll kill you. It, it matters who you worship and it matters how. And so actually I don't want to run too quickly to the idea of forgiveness. I want you just to think, what's in my heart that I need to fear? What's in my heart I need to flee and fight? But the message of the Bible doesn't end there. It's a message about Jesus who died on the cross to wash away your sins. He says to you today, he says, you have sinned, but I've paid for it. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He says, trust in me and all will be forgiven. He says, you've got two ways to live. Persist in idolatry and you won't enter heaven, but turn your back on it to every day and come to me and all will be forgiven. Jesus says, I know there'll be idols. Your heart is a factory for idols, but I love you and I'll forgive you not just for the idols that you've had in your past. I'll forgive you for the present ones you're fighting against now. I'll forgive you for the ones you you're tempted towards in the future and you have to fight in the future i'll forgive all of it just don't imagine you can have it both ways just don't imagine that you can have your idols and jesus as well no this is a call to burn your idols today burn your idols tomorrow when you find them again in your heart set up burn them then again and then instead to try to live 1 corinthians chapter 10 verse 31 and 32 and i'll finish with this whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all, not for your sinful desires, for the glory of God. Don't cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, the Church of God, just like me, Paul says. So you might need to come to Jesus today, the Saviour, the true God, for the first time. Others of you, you might need to repent of, of things. But join with me as we pray and make this your prayer to God. Father, we are sorry that we so often find in our hearts desires that would lead us away from you, that would, we would put in place of you, that we would serve and make sacrifices for that aren't you. Help us, Lord, to flee idolatry, to fear it, to fight it. Thank you that in Jesus there's forgiveness. Help us to make decisions based on what will bring you glory, so that we might live lives of true worship. Amen.